Welcome back to the Friends and Neighbors podcast. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, journalist and author, Luke Russer. Landing Tim Russer, legendary steward of the iconic Sunday morning news program, Meet the Press, for our 2012 PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me, was a coup. His participation lent our little indie film credibility and made it possible to book other luminaries like Susan Stamberg, Mark Brown, and Linda Ellerby. In the film, Tim connects Fred Rogers to our then and still polarized political moment sharing deep and simple stories that underscored the imperative for neighborhood values from the White House to our house. It was Tim's wife, legendary Vanity Fair special correspondent Maureen Orth's 2003 remembrance of Fred's kindness to her son Luke in the Nantucket Inquirer Mirror that hit me to the connection in the first place. And so it was with great awe and enthusiasm that just four years after Tim's untimely death, Christopher and I shared brunch with Maureen prior to our 2012 Washington, D.C. premiere, which Maureen attended and graciously participated in Q&A. We stayed in touch afterward, meeting in New York and on Nantucket for years to come, which is how I met Luke, who was, at the time, cutting his teeth as a correspondent for NBC News. On this week's Friends and Neighbors, we come full circle and hear Luke's remembrance of meeting Mr. Rogers, growing up the son of two renowned journalists and coming to terms with the loss of his father. And we dive deep into his new New York Times bestseller, Look For Me There, in which he recounts so beautifully a journey that began as several open-ended months of travel to decompress and reassess and became a three-year odyssey across six continents to discover the world, and ultimately, to find himself. We begin, as you'd expect, on Nantucket. We had a place that we rented out in Madiket, the fishing village on the west side of the island of Nantucket. And that was a different Nantucket than what it is now. And it was really fun because there was no Wi-Fi, barely any TV, you were outside, you would make tuna sandwiches and eat them and the old old folks would have drinks on the beach and you're just outside enjoying nature in the water. And that was life on your bike and looking for snapping turtles and crabs and, and fishing and the whole nine yards. And Mr. Rogers had that house called the Crooked House. Yeah. And what I remember distinctly about that neighborhood was there was actually two other Pittsburgh families on that street. And he was sort of friendly with them. And one day, this guy named Captain Tom Okanuck, yes, who is a wonderful character, who is bright red in the face. <laughs> and he would greet you shirtless every morning while holding his Miller uh, High Life and say, you know, welcome to heaven. You say, well, it is heaven. It's, it's 9 a.m., Captain Tom. We love it. Yeah. Go for it. And he's just a wonderful, sweet man. And he took me over one day and... Mr. Rogers was there and first like, oh my God, it's Mr. Rogers. Yeah. But just a very warm, gentle, loving soul. And he taught me about this edible flower that they had been growing. I'll always remember that. It was some sort of edible flower. He's like, oh, it pairs very well with the bluefish pate, which is of course the fish of Nantucket. And he showed it to me and I had never eaten a flower before. And he says, no, go ahead. You can eat it. And so I did. And that was very cool. And then I wanted him to sign something. 
and we couldn't find any paper. This just shows you how rustic Nantucket was. There's like literally no paper around. Yeah. So there was a pen and, and Mr. Rogers had a paper plate. So he signed a paper plate for me uh, with the pen and I went on my way and brought it home and said, hey, mom, dad, I met Mr. Rogers. Oh my God. And then we ran into him a few other times walking on the beach and he and my father obviously bonded a lot. They, they really liked each other, kind of the same vibe and ethos. Uh, but I just remember him as this incredibly warm, gentle, loving soul. The frequency he vibrated at was much more manageable and at a lower level than the average person, particularly in the two towns we've worked in, in New York or D.C., where the vibration is really high frequency, right? One of the things I say about New York and Washington, it's very frantic. Yeah. And I think what Mr. Rogers was wonderful at is he centered you in such a wonderfully calm way about what actually mattered. And I think the fact that that show still has staying power to this day, even though kids are so connected now to screens and social media, but then they go back and they watch someone like Mr. Rogers and they pause and it gives you pause in a good way. And I think that's something which we really lack in society. And thank God we still have some nostalgia for it, especially for him. Yeah. You don't realize it till you watch your film and the other ones made about him that what he was preaching was a little radical at the time for who he was. And I think he did a wonderful job of conveying a message that now in 2023, we all agree with, but doing it in a way that did not rock the boat too much so that it actually reached the most amount of people. It was very smart how he pulled that off. You characterize your dad as sensitive and empathetic. I love this. The coach, of course, who managed players and knew when to push and pull. What else did you admire about your dad? And, and in what ways do you wish he'd shown up that maybe he, he hadn't or didn't or couldn't? I always admired how he gave me the gift of time. Mm. And the time that he gave me was very honest time. And if it was ever interrupted by a phone call or a, a, a need to go back to work, he would make it up to me. He would say, I'm really sorry. This is one where I have to, to, to step away for a second, but I'll make it up to you. And he always did. And so we, we had a really wonderful relationship where our time didn't feel rushed. He took many moments to ask me how I was doing in my own life, how my friends were doing. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that I really noticed is that he reached out to my friends consistently and knew what was sort of going on in the friend group, which was something that my friends really admired. I mean, when he passed, uh, they took it just as hard as I did, if not more, because they lost you know, their sort of favorite uncle, if you will. Yeah. So those are things that I always really admired from him. In terms of, you know, what else you would like, I always just, I I really would have liked to see how he would have aged just because I think at some point I would have liked to sort of see, all right, is there a way that you can maybe tone down all the responsibilities you have and maybe just have time for yourself? Do you want to, do you want to know what the time for yourself looks like? But it's interesting. I don't think he ever really would have wanted to do that. He was so giving but he valued work to such a degree because my grandfather worked two jobs for 40 years. So he saw work as really purposeful. That's for work. He and I are sort of different. I took some time away from work to really process my own thoughts and live in my own head for a little bit. There's a real value in, in unplugging yourself for a little bit. So I would really like to see if he could have done that. And I probably would have tried to help him. <laughs> I imagine you would. And I think that's also, there's a generational dynamic there, right? Like, there is. And yes. you, you get at that subtext by mentioning your grandfather and, and mine was the same, you know, worked at John mm-hmm. Deere in Waterloo, Iowa. And time for yourself wouldn't have computed. I think about my grandfather, World War II veteran, survived a plane crash. Like he's not sitting around feeling sorry for himself in a capacity. 
And he did his duty, right? And passed that idea of duty onto my father. One of the things I talk about is this sort of difference between duty and desire. Mm -hmm. And you have to balance those things, in my opinion, to be a fulfilled person. I've had a lot of interesting letters that have come into me now since the book's been out for a few weeks. And one of the more interesting ones, especially from younger people, is I understand what you're writing about, especially growing up in a Catholic family, of this idea of duty. A lot of firstborn children message me that. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, that we are you know, a younger generation beginning to understand and seeing how much of that has passed forward. Because for all the talk of the boomers and free love and the new way of doing things, there's a lot of the old school ethos, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It built a beautiful America, but there's some things there to look through. Yeah, you can almost see the progression between greatest generation through to boomers, uh, through to X and Y and so forth. And you're certainly a sign, a signal and a flag bearer for that progress. So your father dies in 2008, you're 22, right? Yeah. And boom, you're thrust into this massively high profile situation. First on sort of a national stage, then you join NBC News pretty rapidly. And I'm going to jump to the low points because I found this language so, it was really resonant with me, okay? So at the low points, you're feeling shattered and inadequate. You're suffering anxiety, sweats and shakes. You're feeling this gnawing emptiness and no one notices. So how do you understand, Luke, that physiological response now? And why do you think no one noticed? I think I did a really good job and I can uh-huh. still fall into this about projecting out a forward-facing, very jocular bravado. And this idea that I grew up with learning, never let them see you sweat, power through, you'll be fine. People have it worse off than you do and just roll with it. And what I would do is I would do that. In my mind, it was like, okay, this is a game today. I got to show up for the game. As soon as the zeros are on the clock, I can revert back to my own locker room, which is my apartment. And then just, ah, it's over. And then you get up and play the game the next day. I did that for a lot of years. And some of those games I actually enjoyed playing. But there comes a point where you realize this is not healthy. And at some point, I got to confront what is bothering me. And in my case, it was that I had never really dealt with the grief of losing my father. But I also didn't know who I was, independent of him in in my own family. One of the things we don't talk about, especially with, with grief and death, is there are these moments that can pop up out of nowhere, which some people think are panic attacks, other people think are just massive anxiety attacks, or it's just sort of the forefront of your mind. It's like, I'm going to have a heart attack today, sure. or something bad is going to happen to me today because it happened to dad. And you fall into this loop and this trap. You become overly hedonistic in a way, mm. and you become sort of nihilistic in a way. It's this idea of like, get your kicks in because I'm going to die today or you know what, just power through and power through. And if it doesn't kill you, it's okay. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize that in the moment because you're trying so hard to just sort of appear normal because you don't want to come across as abnormal because when you come across as abnormal, people get uncomfortable. And for me, one of the big things that I, I was trying to do, especially after my father passes, I saw a duty in making people happier and making people more comfortable So when they looked at me, they sort of saw the twinkle in Tim's eye still living. The flame was still living. And I gravitated towards that because I actually benefited from that for a time. But that can only go on for so long. At some point, it's a very heavy load to carry. 
Well, you find yourself summoned by, of all people, John Boehner, (laughs) who suggests, in essence, that you not get swallowed by the DC machine. Why do you think he noticed, and what have you heard from him since as he's read the book, (laughs) re his role in sort of catalyzing this sort of epiphany for you? He called me into his office that day and he says, what are you doing here? It was very unexpected because I thought he was going to be upset about coverage. Yeah. Politicians get. And he asked a very simple question. What are you doing here? And I go, excuse me, you invited me into your office. I'm here. (laughs) He goes, no, what are you doing here on Capitol Hill? 40, 50, 60 years I see people sit here. They don't leave. Time's a flat circle. You don't learn anything about the country. You don't learn anything about yourself. It's a very easy existence. I go, it's not an easy existence. I work 20-hour days here. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, there's a new Congress there's always parties. There's always a scene. Are you really challenging yourself beyond what you know? And it really resonated with me because I had been having these types of feelings around turning 30. Yeah. The light at the end of the tunnel was getting brighter. And I think for him, it was in some ways paternalistic. He had a very similar upbringing to my father. He grew up in a working class Catholic family him in Cincinnati. He paid for, for college like my dad did by doing odd jobs. He was a janitor. And I think he sort of saw me at age 30 and, and he, you know, we were there eight years together and this sort of place of, Hey, if you're going to go, you, this is really the time because as you get older, it gets much harder and you're only going to progress up in your career. He liked the book, which was neat, which I, which I appreciated. And, uh, you know, typical Boehner he's like, all right, now you, you did this. What are you going to do next? <laughs> it's like, we're getting there. We're getting there. But it, it's also very you know, Jesuitical is what I call it. Catholic Jesuit questions that we, we ask, which are kind of Jedi mind games to a degree too. So in October, 2016, you're out, you exit. Yeah. I had a list of all the places and sort of bullets of epiphanies in each, but I'm going to cut to like three of them, Argentina, Uruguay, New Zealand, and Cambodia. I thought this is a really important moment, right? You have this realization that you need to embrace the suffering. Well, what did that mean to you in the moment? And what does that mean to you now? One of the things I learned while traveling is I had a very deep interest in faiths, different faiths aside from my own. And so I learned about Islam, I learned about Judaism, I learned about Hinduism, I learned about Buddhism, and sort of seeing ultimately that we're all trying to get to the same place, but people are just taking different paths to get there. Yeah. And that place is, is what constitutes a place of peace, a place of enlightenment, a place of fulfillment, whatever you want to call it. That's ultimately where all these religions are trying to go. And what I learned when I was in Cambodia Go to Angkor Wat. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. And that's an interesting place because it has both Hindu and Buddhist history to it. I asked the the guy and said, can we go to a Buddhist monastery here? It's very hot. I'd like to just sort of see something else. And I go to this monastery and it's fascinating to learn the story of Buddha and how it was somebody whose father had tried to protect them from the outside world, but then realized he had to see the world to be a more fulfilled and better person. And ultimately, the idea of embracing the suffering because life is suffering. So you have to accept that. And people hear that and they go, well, I'm not suffering every single day. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that in life, when you wake up in the morning, there might be doubt in your head, self-doubt. Like That's a sort of form of suffering. Or the stresses of the day are a form of suffering. Or someone who you love might be mad at you in that given moment. That's sort of a form of suffering, Right. And when you learn to sort of embrace that, that that's going to be omnipresent, you're never going to get to this perfect Zen, aha, where everything's great all the time. 
then it opens up your mind to be able to say, okay, I'm going to take things in stride and I'm going to be peaceful and comfortable in uncertainty. And that's really something I got from travel, but I especially got that in Cambodia. Right. And the common parallels to Buddhism, which is this sort of moment of reflection in the day, which they do through meditation. But then you have something like the Jesuit examine, which is very similar, which is a sort of course of four or five questions you ask in meditative prayer during the day about, you know, what did you notice today? Did you do your best job today? Where, where did you do a good job? Where did you lack? Things like that. I noticed a similarity. So it was very fascinating because through Buddhism and, and with those Cambodian monks, I was also able to understand my own faith better. Yeah, It was very, very eye-opening. That's something that only comes from, from travel. Getting to that space is not easy because society doesn't really want you in that space because there's discomfort in it, yeah. right? You have to admit discomfort. But once you start doing that, things become a lot more clear. Yeah, we're not great with discomfort. We're marketed away from discomfort, right? Like it's a courageous action for you to share as vulnerably as you choose to here because yeah. it's not what we do. No, especially not in the United States. It's a great point you bring up on that because one of the things you realize in the U.S. is we're a nation of abundance. Right. And we try to paper over that suffering to a degree. And you still very much have the mob apple pie, Chevrolet, white picket fence, you know, that's just sort of promoted all the time. And other countries have an element of that, but there's also this sort of a shared human experience. And somebody asked me, what's something you learned around the world that you, you try to apply to your own life when you can? And I go, this is going to sound crazy, but you go, if you go to Cuba, neighbors have coffee without a phone and they literally walk up and down the street <laughs> drinking coffee in the morning. Right. And the, and the host said to me, he's like, well, everyone drinks coffee in the morning and talks to people. I said, not like that. It's yeah. different. It's a, it's a neighborhood check-in. It's being aware of what's, what the surroundings are. Hey, this kid grew another inch today, right? That guy has a new car. You know, let me talk. It, it's being present. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we don't do in the United States very much anymore is be present. People are very closed off in their own little fortresses and, and whatnot. And that's sad. It really is. Notice that you're using the word neighbor, right? Back to Fred. It's community care, right? And it's like looking out for each other. And I I do think the rugged individualism, sort of that John Wayneism, also from Iowa, of America (laughs) is endemic and, and ultimately becomes problematic when sort of taken to the nth. I have to share also right over here to the right on my bulletin board of Fred Rogers quote, as different as we are from one another, as unique as each one of us is, we're much more the same than we are different. And that may be the most essential message of all. Completely agree. And one of the things that I learned while I was traveling, I didn't really have a single negative experience. My worst experience happened in Budapest, Hungary, where these sort of Soviet-style train ticket people claimed <laughs> that I had the wrong ticket and fined me $30. So that's the worst thing that happened to me in six continents and 65-plus countries. And I went to some places that aren't exactly large fans of the United States. And I think what you come to realize is that extremes are always going to garner attention. And part of the reason why is because it's easier for us as a society to paint people in black and white. Sure. These people act in one way. These people act this way. They don't like each other. That's the cause of all this turmoil and problems. When you travel, you realize that the world is not black and white. The world lives in the gray. There's a ton of nuance everywhere. So one of the things I really try to do is appreciate nuance. 
And that quote by Mr. Rogers is so spot on because what you realize is that within that nuance, people really only want, in my opinion, three things, which is to be respected, to have a roof over their heads and food in their belly. Yeah. And if they have those three things, it goes a really long way. And most people, if they have those three things, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt and they'll be nice to you so long as you're nice to them, yeah. which is the most important thing, which is respect. It's amazing. It's, it's not that complicated, yeah. but yet for so many reasons it is. Well, and you know, as a journalist and as a guy who works with language so beautifully that the fundamental of language is that meaning is made, well, or visuals, but meaning is made through difference, right? So we compare mm -hmm. and contrast and two things that are very far apart are much easier to distinguish than two things are. that are really close, right? That's a very good point, Ben, because I think what you're hitting on there is something that we get so far away from because it is difficult as a journalist, as a podcaster, as a writer to get into that space because it blows away the very comfortable constructs we yeah. have. When I was in politics, I would always try to seek out those voters who voted for one person for president in 2012 right. and a different one in 16 and different 20 and sort of get into that space. You know, what is going on there? Why are they, where are they doing that? And they're fewer and far between, but that's the sort of mentality you want to study a little bit. What I've learned about the endocrine system and the nervous system is that awe is super valuable for things like dopamine and oxytocin, right? Because when you have beauty and wonder and awe, it's pretty difficult to feel anxious. It nourishes us, you know? Completely agree. And one of the things that I preach now is there's a reason why man has always been one with nature. Mm -hmm. There's a reason going back millions of years why man has sort of sought out shelter in these beautiful spaces. For me, as somebody who had appreciation for nature, but had really never been out in it for long periods of time, it was a complete, complete, complete just re baptism, being reborn yeah. in a different mentality to the point of where I seek out that nature as much as possible now. And I think when you are in that space, you are less anxious. You are captivated by the beauty of the natural world. And you're able to put your head in the space of, okay, you know what? All that noise doesn't matter as much because no matter what happens to me, there's always going to be this beautiful, like these beautiful landscapes. This is going to be here. And people say, oh, they could be developed one day. <laughs> look at Chernobyl. Okay, look at Chernobyl. We can develop it and do whatever. We can, we can drop a nuclear waste bomb yeah. on it. And nature finds a way 40, 50 years later that, Hey, we'll get Chernobyl now. It's all animals and trees and whatnot. We'll see. It'll probably take way longer, but Mother Nature will find a way and ultimately win. And I find a real comfort in that. And it's so beautiful. And one of the things I, uh, you know, just people say, well, you had the ability and the means to do all this traveling. I say, I'm, I'm conscientious of that. But it doesn't take going to Easter Island or it doesn't take going to Patagonia. You can go in the woods down the street yeah. and unplug your phone and just sit there and breathe. And we don't do that enough. You know, it's always next, 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 yeah. next, next, next. Yeah, yeah. It is pretty simple, as Fred would say, right? It's pretty deep and simple. Yes. I think that's yes. what he loved about the West Side. And, and as you describe it, it's sort of a different Nantucket. And I tried to point mm -hmm. this out in the movie than the one that I think people think when they hear. It's wild and quiet. Mm -hmm. I found that when I was in New York and I would go there, I still do. It's just, uh, you need that. But it is available anywhere. It's really just a question of prioritizing it. 
first time I had ever worked at length in New York City was the summer of 2007. And I was an intern at uh, Conan O'Brien. And one of my best friends at that internship was this kid. He, he had spent a lot of time in Staten Island and then he, his family had moved to Connecticut. And we had had like a six week straight run there. We had never really left Midtown for six weeks yeah. in a row, you know, weekends included. And he says to me, he goes, all right, we got to decompress. And then, you know, I was like, I grew up in DC around nature, which was nice in Rock Creek Park. So yeah, I yeah. understood that immediately. He's like, no, we need something more than Central Park. And I just remember the first time after being in Midtown for six weeks straight, we drove out you know, somewhere to Connecticut. We went out to these sort of those woods area and it was just like, oh, yeah. I mean, it was incredible. I, I, I still remember breathing. It tastes like different. That. Yeah. It tastes different. Yeah. Everything was different. And I was just like, oh man, this is really important. <laughs> really, really important. I often describe now, and I only know this having left finally my experience working and living in New York as the frog in boiling water. I had no idea. Yeah, that's a really good way. I had no idea how hot the water was. Um, yeah. and, and, and I'm grateful as you are for the experiences that I had. But boy, oh boy, am I happy to have something, a, di- a different perspective now. For sure. So back to your sure. travels, Sri Lanka, you have having a low point and you write about the anxiety of being alone and the inward focus. And you say, I don't like what I see. And yeah. I want to know, Luke, what did you see and what did you do? That's a point of the travel where I begin to realize that this freedom that I had sought out, this freedom that I needed, this time away that I, I, I was yearning for, it begins to have a detrimental effect. You know, Jason Isbell has a line that I've stolen that I love, which is that in the song, Something More Than Free, he talks about basically that the freedom that you seek out, that you finally obtain as an adult, if it gets to be too much, you can strangle yourself with it. And that's ultimately what I was doing, is that I was strangling myself with that freedom. And Sri Lanka is a very interesting chapter because as I've seen people read the book, it's a chapter that angers a lot of people. And they say, you come across as being uh, an asshole. You come across as being so mean. And I almost put the book down. And one of the things I try and tell people is I go, that was intentional because I did not like the person that I that I saw. And I'm writing about the person that I saw in the mirror. Yeah. And the conscientious reader will look at that and I think gets it, yeah. right? And is able to put away their own visceral reaction of, ugh. And then sees the ultimate maturation process from realizing, okay, that was a low point. And I think what you end up seeing in a situation like that is you are looking for this aha moment that travel is supposed to bring. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work like that. You have to seek things out, but you also have to process things. And for me, I could sort of took the travel as, all right, this is my job. You know, I put it on Instagram. I go see new places and we'll go to the next one and something will show itself and something will be okay. And I kind of stopped looking, to be honest Mm -hmm. with you. I just sort of took it in as a job. And when you take things in as a job and you get away from the honest, brilliant, beautiful moments that sort of started the whole thing, you fall into bad habits, whether that's drinking too much, eating too much, not really thinking about just the incredible privilege and how blessed you are to have the experience. And that I fell into that. And ultimately, thankfully, I was able to be aware of like, I'm not being myself. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't this sort of aha moment. Okay, now I have to better myself. It was like, okay, something's off. Let me try to explore what that is. Right. But it took a long time. And I think that's one of the themes that I try and hit on in the book is we're so obsessed with like, 
fix it quickly. Yes. Instant gratification. It doesn't work like that. Things take time. And that's another thing where people, they don't like that in yeah. these days. Right. And you look, you're looked at as weak if yeah. you're taking your time to fix something. And it's hard. I commiserate a lot. And it's funny, before I started all this, when I was in NBC, I would have friends in the art space or the creative space. And they would say, oh, yeah, this is going to take me three years to do it. Like, How is that going to take you three years to do it? Just do it. And I was completely wrong. Right. <laughs> it does take a long time yeah. for it to be good and to be expressive and to be honest. So what happened in Marfa, Texas? And how did the place inform the moment? That was sort of the end of, of the dark spell in 2018, where I was kind of going off the rails a little bit, where I wasn't really traveling much anymore. I was sort of trying to find this sort of capstone of like, all right, you know, maybe this will come to me. I had heard good things about the hills of West Texas, that prophetic things come out of there, who the hell knows. But I basically drove from Tucson to Marfa. And during the course of that drive, this woman who I had been sort of seeing off and on for a while completely sort of ended things and that was it. So it puts you in a, in a difficult headspace. You're sort of trying to evaluate life. Oh gosh, you know, I'm now 33 years old. You know, what am I doing? And I go to Marfa and it's such an odd place. It's certainly a place that originally was, I think, founded for the right reasons with the artisans mm -hmm. and being out in the nature of those rolling foothills of West Texas, which are stunningly beautiful. But there's also a lot of illusion there. Mm -hmm. And so you have that fake Prada store. You have these guys who come in from L.A. driving Cadillac Escalades who are dressed uh, looking like Hank Williams you know, from 1937. You're just, okay, man, like, I, I got you. I started to look inward and, and I mentioned this in the book is, am I an illusion? Yeah. Right. Is this all been just an exercise in vanity for a social media space or for something that I'm just sort of presenting out to the world, which is not actually why I did this or what I was about. And it's hard to hold that uh, weight. And there's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of self-loathing in those types of moments because yeah. you look out again, you know, years of life that you've just done, which was supposed to be this incredibly beautiful, life-changing journey. Oh my God, was this all for nothing? It pushes you into a dark place. And I think I write about being in that place. And ultimately what, what gets me out of it is combination of, all right, I'm unsettled. Let me go into therapy and start talking at a deeper level about what's going on in my mind. But then also sort of taking this reset of going back to basics, which is going back to that nature, unplugging, in my case, running, jogging, starting to sweat and being like, okay, let me center myself. Then I do something which is very unique is I go back to the journals that I had been keeping for the last few years. And I open them up and I start to go through them looking for sort of an answer of what was all this. And as I go through the journals, I go, aha, I realized something that I was simultaneously looking for something, which was ultimately permission and acceptance to be myself. And then I was also running away from something. Yeah. And that was running away from the grief of losing dad and processing that. And this deeply inward journey happened over many external places. And once I saw that, as I went through those journals, I started to write them out. I go, okay, I got to find the through lines here. But that took some time too. Sure. But it was those journals that honestly, 
I would say saved me in the sense that they gave me purpose of what the whole journey was about. And I'm so thankful I had them. And I encourage everybody when you're out traveling or even if you're just going through something, just even writing down some bullet points is so helpful. It's interesting, Luke, that you say those journals saved you because those journals are you. Right. Yeah. You saved you, right? Like, I mean, the writing is so critical for two reasons. Our brain is really focused on scanning for danger. That's like its job. That's our job, mm-hmm. right? When we write, first of all, we're, we're, we're focusing on what's happening inside of us, which is not dangerous. So we take our focus off this sort of external perceived anxiety or danger. And furthermore, we tend to tell ourselves what's happening, right? You just had to take the time to find the wisdom that you had and to reflect on it, which I just think is such a great referendum on, you know, this idea that everything we need is actually probably inside of us to some degree. It is. And I will add one thing there, which is one of the beauties of technology. We should give technology credit because technology does provide a lot of opportunity for us. And one of the things that was so neat was I had these journals where I captured a moment and then I was able to look through photographs that aligned with that day. Right. And to have the photograph and then to have the journal about how you felt in that moment, you can really transport yourself back right, to a moment right. in time and understand how you felt. And it was really helpful and powerful uh, because you can notice things like, oh, my eyes looked really tired that day, or man, I was glowing, or oh yeah, I remember that guy behind me in the tour. He was so crazy and that made me act this way. (laughs) It's just all sorts of things that are are really uh, interesting when those two are put together. So you're back home, you're in therapy, you realize you'd been white knuckling, which I really appreciated Mm -hmm. and that resonated with me. And you resolve to embrace anxiety, to go deeper, to live open and free, uncertain and vulnerable life. So how does that manifest for you now in the day-to-day? It's always a work in progress. And I think that what you just said about how your brain is hardwired for safety, you do fall back into older ways of thinking of, all right, I'm not going to do this because it's going to cause this pain or anguish or discomfort even though it might be something as mundane as, like I always tell people this, I don't like going to French cafes where I'm sitting so close to the other person <laughs> totally. because I am like feel like I'm on top of them. And for a long time, that would give me such bad anxiety. Like I'm going to knock over their food or I'm going to say something or I'm hot and I'm bothered and I'm sweaty. And I don't like doing that. Yeah. But I also realized like, okay, it's not the end of the world. So a friend of mine says, hey, let's go get lunch. The only seats available is the tight one in the little cafe. And we sit there. I take a breath. I look at it. I go, how are you feeling? You're feeling great. You've done this before. You're going to be fine. You're not going to knock over the person's entire meal when you get up. Things will be all right. And I think those sort of conversations with yourself where you yeah. take a moment, you take pause are so very important. The other thing is... I think really trying to embrace a mentality of being so thankful and be full of gratitude for what Mm -hmm. we have and realize that so many of the things that we make up to be problems in our day-to-day lives are so inconsequential. Yeah. And one of the things that you hear consistently is, you know, someone will have a a life altering diagnosis or they have an accident or they have an event or they, they immediately come back with of, man, I didn't realize how precious life is. And that's cliche, but it's so true. And I just, you know, I have friends that 
they'll have a Zoom call and they completely melt down about something what's going on with their company or uh, you know, someone will see the stock market take a dive and, you know, all hell is broken loose or, you know, someone's child had a tantrum and and I get it. Like those are difficult moments in life, but you got to have a moment of appreciation for everything else. And I go back to my grandfather because there's a guy who worked two jobs, truck driver and a garbage man for 40 years, but his glass was always half full. And I write about sort of trying to tap into that energy, which is that, there is a decision to be made at some point of how you want to go about things. And there's certainly difficulty and you're going to live in that difficulty at times and you won't be your best self. But if you're trying to get to a place of understanding and peace and fulfillment, you got to let some stuff go and it's easier said than done. And it's not for everybody. Some people need that hunger and tenacity all the time. They're competitive and that's what gets them up in the morning. I respect that, but that's not for everybody. You know, there's a lot of people who I think would be well served just to uh, take a breath. The last stop on the journey is the Holy Land. And yeah. you cite Luke 12, 48. What does this particular biblical passage mean to you? The passage itself is to whom much is given, much is expected. And it's something that my father used to tell me a lot. And I have it tattooed on my inner arm. And it's one of those things where that passage haunted me for a while Mm -hmm. because I saw the weight of expectation, that weight of duty that uh, was conveyed with it. But ultimately over time and through the journey, I realized that it's a very honest sort of beautiful way of saying you owe the world something and that is to be a good human being. And that is an expectation that is more than enough. And what I mean by that is to be respectful and kind and helping out those around you. And if you do that, you've lived a great life. That was so eye-opening for me. And I really learned the ethos of that passage from the world Mm -hmm. and all those people that helped me out, whether it was just a stranger giving me directions or someone opening up uh, the last room they had at a boarding house that really wasn't available, but because everything else was taken, they they felt, hey, let me help this guy out. And that's all there because those people, a lot's expected and they're owning up to it, right? They're doing the Lord's work, the universe's work, whatever you want to call it. You had the good fortune of being raised by two superpowers, right? Like <laughs> my mother says hello, by the way. Oh, yeah. please tell her hi. So, I mean, I've, I've hung out with her a few times. Yeah. Chris and I had breakfast with her the day we premiered the film in DC. Yeah. And then she came, God bless her, and did like a Q&A afterwards. And after the a breakfast, as we were walking over to the museum when it was still open, I mm-hmm. said to Chris, I was like, dude, that's a documentary right there. Oh, like yeah. that woman is unbelievable, right? Absolutely. So I'm interested in, and I, I just thought it was great that there was that balance yeah. um, in the book. And I loved, you know, reading about your relationship and your travels with her as well. What did your mom learn about you, Luke, through the journey that you share in the book? And what did she learn about herself, do you think? I think what she learned about me was I was willingly a lot more like her Mm. than she may have thought. You know, my mom had encouraged me to travel for many, many years, and that fell on deaf ears. I was always sort of had to work, or I wanted to take my precious few days of vacation and not have to go great lengths in an airplane. So I wanted to sort of stay where it was comfortable and easy and what I knew. 
And my mom, when she was a young woman, graduated from Cal Berkeley. The opportunities for her were very limited. It was be a nurse, be a teacher. She wanted to do more. And so she joined the Peace Corps. And it was during that time in the Peace Corps where she was really able to measure herself up against the world and know a lot about who she was in her own comfort and uncertainty, her own toughness, her own ability to navigate situations. And I think ultimately that was very beneficial. And she saw that as through travel. She wanted me to do that. She always encouraged it. So when I embraced that travel and even took it to greater heights than she had ever dreamed yeah, of, yeah, you I think there was a lot of her, which was to the point where she said, you got to stop. This is getting crazy. But there was a part of her that was proud of, oh, this message that I have been preaching for decades has finally landed and it's a cause for enlightenment. She, when traveling with me, I think she started to sort of realize the value in having a kid that while he's becoming more worldly and understanding the ways of the world, was there was a benefit to that sort of American upbringing. And what I mean by that is I would be around the world, and especially with my mom, very conscious of being respectful of people, being aware of other people's customs, which is something we don't necessarily think of that Americans do. Yeah. But I was sort of pre-programmed not to sort of be the ugly American. Totally. And, and that is something which I think she learned, which I don't know if she thought was possible for me, which was really heartwarming. And, and nice. she goes, wow, you've become a very, we say it's like leave only footprints sort of traveler. And that was a big deal. The book was released just prior to Mental Health Awareness Month and just prior to Father's Day. Now, this sense that men from Shakespeare prior and subsequent have been looking to understand their fathers, right? For generations. Sure. So what did you come to understand about yours? And what have you heard from readers about their own efforts to better understand their fathers? So Father's Day was totally intentional. Mental health awareness was actually not, and it was just a real blessing, which I, I equate to how the universe works. Yeah, once yeah, I saw too. that, I was like, wow, okay, this was, this was the right time. Because originally it was, oh, maybe released in April. I said, no, May is a good month because you get close to Father's Day. It was also my dad's birthday on May 7th. All so right, I liked yeah. having being close to that. The reception I've gotten from people has been awe-inspiring. Yeah. It's been emotional. Uh, there have been some very difficult notes where people really open themselves up. And one of the things you realize is that trying to understand your dad is something that people will go through on their own journeys for years and years and years. Right. And I've had people who reached out to me who are in their 70s or 80s yeah. and read the book and go, your book helped me shed some clarity on what these thoughts that I was feeling for decades. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know how to respond to that. I'm very cordial and kind and, and I do the best I can, but you just think about people 80 years old that have been yeah. holding on to something for so long and how difficult that is. And I think that really speaks to we as a society, especially men are not really programmed to have those emotions be public. Early on, when my father died, there's so many men in my life, men who I really love and admire, who would say, you know, stay strong, be tough, you know, weather storm, be there for mom, you know, show yourself. And I try to do that. And I did do that for a number of years. And that's okay. But that's not everything. And yeah. at some point, you're going to give out. And you just can't hold it all like that. It's been proven true by the reception I've got from, from all these folks. The other thing I will say, though, that I think is really interesting 
is that we all go through our different grief journeys, try to understand who our parents are as, as mortals. What I mean by that is mm. who are your parents independent mm-hmm. of their most important roles as mom and dad. And in my case was, I learned about that through my, about my father through my own grief journey and trying to sort of process him and contextualize him. And then I was very thankful. I was able to do that with my mom while she was around. And it was when I understood her independent of that role of mom and sort of got her origin story that our relationship actually improved. I kind of realized like, oh, you know what? I don't want her, you know, leaving this earth without answering any questions I have about life. And I want to maximize the time we have together. And that's something that I think at the beginning of the journey, I probably wasn't in that headspace. Yeah. And I think that's sort of something where, I've noticed, especially with people reaching out to me, is there are a lot of folks that harbor a lot of regret, whether that's the lack of time they had or they weren't able to say things they wanted to say or they let petty, you know, stupid disagreements just last and linger for so many years. Just let it go, man. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's way better better things to do in life and, and love your parents if you can. New York Times bestseller list, multiple weeks running. Congratulations, yeah, thank right? Thank you. Appreciate Alongside that. Bessel van der Kook's The Body Keeps the Score, which has been on the bestseller list for 150 yeah. weeks, and Prince Harry's Spare, which is about yeah. grief, right? So sort of wedged between trauma and grief. And I'm interested if you think that tells you or us anything about America in 2023 and, and, and like how you've been counseling people specifically about grief. You're speaking to something which I think is incredibly important, which we as a society in the United States have not acknowledged that a million people died recently. And COVID is over. We don't talk about COVID. COVID has become an incredibly uncomfortable thing because it immediately gets political and people revert into their own camps. And you can't even have a discussion about it, which is so incredibly sad because there are a lot of things we could learn, which is, okay, you know, vaccines are not the devil. Was it a smart idea to lock everything down so quickly? Maybe we should have thought more as the science came in about open air being safer and having schools and parking garages. I mean, there's all these sort of conversations we can have where we don't have to get so angry at one another, yeah. right? Yeah. To sort of have it in the context of this was a once in a hundred year pandemic that we were yeah. trying to figure out on the fly. Like, let's have a little patience and respect. Yeah. And also, understand that a million of our fellow citizens died and what that must be like for those families. Yeah, That's sort of something where the book speaks to that, not just folks who, you know, died during COVID, but also in these kind of difficult years that we've had in the United States and uh, over the last, you know, five years or so, people are a little bit lost where we're still trying to know who we are as a country. And I think that filters down to who we are as people. And I think grief and especially trauma are something that even in this world which we live in, when we seemingly put everything out on social media, yeah, that's still something that's kept in. That stuff's hard, yeah. And it's hard. And I think people kind of look for ways to process it. And one of the things I'm very outspoken about is like there is no perfect way here. Everybody's different. And so it's like, what do you do with that knowledge and where do you take it and how does it benefit you and where are you comfortable? One of the things I've realized is just as simple as having a conversation like this Yeah, that people listen to and go, ah, I can relate to that, right? I get it. Or I'm not alone in it. And I'm not alone. Yes. And that's a very important point too, is I think 
we are going back to that rugged individualism you talked about, John, yeah. Wayne, you know, birth of the pride of Iowa. There is a lot of that in, in our ethos, especially the United States, which is go it alone and do not bother people with your problems. I try to be more open about things I'm feeling and whatnot. And I do, but there's still my, my first go-to is always don't bother people with your issues. Just shut up, go along, you're fine, you know, make them more comfortable. And other people have it worse, right? Which is what yeah, I heard. other people have, and, if, and that's true, of course, almost mm-hmm. always, right? But you only, I've said this to my brother every time because this is what his response always is. I'm like, but dude, all I have is this right. set of eyes yeah. and this heart yeah. and this yeah. nervous system, you know? And the benefit also of when you improve yourself, you're improving your community. So it's, right. yeah, it is true. Other people have it worse, but I b- really do believe that if more people improve themselves, uh, from top to bottom, it benefits everybody. Springsteen, what is your go-to and why is it important to you? It's something that was passed down from my father. And I talk about you know, when the Buffalo Bills play on Sunday for three hours, dad's alive again. When I go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, dad is alive again. Yeah. I feel his presence more so than any other place in those two experiences. And with Springsteen, the catalog from start to finish is just so beautiful because you see the arc of an American existence. What he always says is his music is about the space between the American dream and the American reality. Yeah. And you see all that, which I really enjoy. But for me, I think where you are in your own progression as a human, especially as an American male, you can kind of parachute in to certain parts of the Springsteen catalog and it helps you feel less alone and it makes sense. And so what I mean by that is, for example, like Tunnel of Love is all about his relationships with women and the difficulties and the wins he has with women and all about that. So for me, my go-to is I try to match what I'm feeling in the moment with the sort of Bruce music that speaks to it. But the stuff that I come back to a lot is the Rising album because it deals so much with loss and grief and instills hope in that space. Yeah. And then also darkness on the edge of town, because I think what's really interesting about darkness on the edge of town is it captures a moment in time where there's good and there's sort of happiness, but then there's also this question of, all right, what comes next and where do I fit and wait, what are all these lingering doubts that I have? Yeah. And so those are sort of paired together. And that's a space I live in a lot to this day. So one more song, somewhere over the rainbow. Oh, yeah. Beautiful song. Uh, Played at the Kennedy Center while my father, uh, we were processing out from his public memorial service there. That was a favorite song of his that he loved so much. He loved every version of it, but we played the song. And when the people walked out to the terrace of the Kennedy Center, there was a beautiful rainbow. And I said, that's dad. And I would see rainbows along the journey. And... Uh, that was, a, at least for me, my, my own little sign that he was aware and he was present and acknowledging himself. And that song, I think, no matter what version you listen to, it's just such a beautiful expression of the human existence in its purest form. And just sort of what we talked about earlier, which is that joy in nature. Oh, it's stunning. It's so stunning. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious what degree you were familiar with the hero's journey prior to actually heading out on one. (laughs) I did this wonderful talk 
with my old high school English teacher a few weeks ago. And it was nice. And we went back to my high school and she read Ithaca, the old poem and about you know, the Odyssey and all that. And talking and brought up Odysseus and, and whatnot. It's a tale as old as time. And it's yeah. been told in so many different ways before there is even writing yeah. this sort of sense of the hero's journey. And I didn't really realize that I had written that until I had looked back and I was going through many edits and I saw that was the through line. And there's a reason why that type of story is written so many times. It's because it kind of is who we are as human beings. And it is universal. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter where you were raised. It is the sort of arc of existence. And you can apply it in so many different capacities. Early on in the book, you describe NBC News as the job of a lifetime. Was it? And if not, what would you say now? I think for NBC, especially from covering politics, there was many years there where I absolutely loved it. Because I was a history major and getting to cover the House of Representatives and being in the Capitol, that is a front row seat to American history. It was like getting a PhD in American government. It never felt like there was a wasted day. Every single day had some type of meaning. But it does weigh on you at some point where the partisanship can lead you to becoming cynical. And that's not a good place to be for any single job. We spoke earlier about nuance. And I think that to have the ability, whether it's through writing or through a documentary like you did so masterfully, you can tell a whole story. And I like to be in the space of telling a whole story. So I think that is the sort of perfect space for me is storytelling, but giving the time that is needed and the effort that is needed to tell everything or to try and hone in on a message and and have it resonate and being honest about it and giving the time and space for that. So I think that's the sort of perfect way to, to go about it. When I started all this, when I left NBC, as a kid, I had harbored ambitions to perhaps be like a park ranger or something like that, sort of live amongst nature or yeah, be a fireman yeah. or something. But what I realized, and go back to what brings you comfort and embracing suffering, is you find your talents and you sort of you hone in on what you're good at. And you might not like it every single day, but there's a reason why you have those talents. Mm-hmm. And it gives you purpose, but it also gives you back to the world, which, you know, it all goes back to Luke 12, 48. The Friends and Neighbors podcast is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please rate and review the podcast on your favorite platform. Not only does it help us to improve the show, but it also helps other people discover and join our neighborhood. Please visit friendsandneighborshow.com to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our newsletter. We promise not to spam you, but we will deliver fresh and meaningful news and information straight to your inbox every week. And I'd love to hear from you directly. Drop me an email at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Someday I wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind. Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where